Welcome friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to local news in social artistry, where we get to talk to folks that are building a more humane world from the inside out. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and my guest today is maybe someone quite familiar to many of you, Ed Hansen, who uh, came to Columbia, what, in 1977? Hi, Ed. Yeah, 1973, actually. Oh, three. Hey. Yeah. The same year KOPN began. I think that's right, but I was not aware of KOPN when I was a, f a freshman in college, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, why not? I wasn't aware of much of anything, I don't think. <laughs> Yes, yes, those were the days, right on. Well, uh, that's cool, 73, uh, you went to Mizzou. What were you? I went to Mizzou, yeah. Went to Mizzou uh, and finished in four years uh, with a degree in music education and then uh, launched a teaching career for one year. And then, <laughs> then I came back and uh, did two years worth of master's work and then went back into teaching again and uh, finished my teaching career in 2008. Did you happen to be there when Tom Mills was there? I was there when Tom was there and uh, uh, he was uh, one of the first people I came in as a as an undecided major in the um, School of Arts and Science and uh, uh, he pulled me aside because I was auditioning to see if I could get a spot in a in a studio for voice lessons and he pulled me aside and he goes you need to be a music major so that was that was the first person that had actually verbalized that to me and uh, uh, Tom was a very special guy. Yes, I, as a freshman, back in 62, became part of University Singers and had done a little workshop during the summer be before that, in between high school and, and uh, college. He had people from, kids from all over the state, which sort of felt like an audition in a way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I had the pleasure of, of being with him for that year. I'm, I transferred to SMU after that, but yeah, wonderful man. Lots of people uh, admired him so much. Yeah. Well, so you taught music in college or high school or? Well, I, my first teaching job was down in Cuba, Missouri, and I taught there for one year and uh, I taught fourth grade through 12th grade general music and vocal music classes. And then um, uh, came back to Columbia and uh, did master's work at the university and, and was a TA for the voice department and taught, taught voice lessons and uh, helped Terry Morrison with the uh, opera workshop classes. Oh. And uh, that was a, just a real joy for me because uh, Harry was not only a, uh, an aficionado of opera, but he loved musical theater. And of course that was my first love too. So the two of us worked very, very well together. Well, I think Harry and I, <laughs> And Kent Tolson, I don't know if you knew Kent. Oh, yes, from Hickman. Hickman. Well, <laughs> Kent, Kent was my music teacher at, at Hickman. And I was in musicals with him. And, and so one year, it might have been the next year, I don't recall, but they were doing, I think, the Pirates of Penzance or the Mikado or one of those. Uh, one of the Gilbert and Sullivans. <laughs> yeah. I finished my master's in 80, but while I was still working on my master's, uh, I um, did a little bit of work with uh, Maplewood Barn in the summers. I'm terrible with years at this point, but there was a production of, of Fiddler on the Roof, and I went out to audition for it, and 
I knew the guy who was directing it because he was an MU student. And um, he pulled me aside and he goes, I don't have a music director. I could easily cast you in the show, but I could pay you to be the music director. And so, <laughs> so that was kind of the beginnings of my uh, professional connection with Maplewood. And then uh, a couple of years after that, I was uh, invited to uh, become their theater manager. The guy who had been running it as the, you know, the business manager had, had left town. And so um, uh, I did that for a good nine or 10 years uh, and became known as Mr. Maplewood for that, <laughs> that, uh, that period of time. And we were, we were sort of in our heyday at that point. We were producing a lot of musicals. And so not only was I running the theater, but I was uh, either uh, on stage performing in things or I was conducting an orchestra off the set and uh, uh, keeping myself very, very busy. We would produce four musicals a summer. Oh, so I sometimes I think back and I think to myself, just how crazy were you? But um, I think that's part of partially what drives uh, drives you as you if you're so passionate about something that you just you can't get enough of it, you know, and it just becomes a steady diet for you. I was taking my kids out when they were little to watch rehearsals and things and uh, they just uh, ate it up. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it was a, definitely a family affair. I think Maplewood Barn must have evolved quite a bit. I. I was in Little Mary Sunshine in 1970 or 71 when I was wondering what I was going to do with my life. And, and it seemed so rustic then. I mean, like it could, you know, like the stage could almost fall through. Right. Uh, I'm sure it got better over the years. Is that Well, and I saw early pictures, you know, of Maplewood Barn before they even had a, a real stage. And um, they had... Um, like a boundary made with hay bales or something where the audience sat on one side of the hay bales and then the performing area was on the other side. <laughs> well, I think we at least had a wood floor of some sort. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and of course the, the, the loss of the, the beautiful old historic barn uh, due to arson several years back um, uh, was, was really sad. Uh, for me, I, I mourned the loss of that building for, for quite some time, but uh, the new uh, structure that they have out there, of course, they were able to add in running water and, and put some bathrooms inside for the cast and crew and do some other things technically on the inside of that to just make it a little bit more habitable. When I was working out there, we had always an infestation of, of uh, wasps and uh, mud daubers and... Um, it was just kind of a, a dusty, dirty barn most of the time. <laughs> so it's actually a, a much cleaner structure than it used to be. Well, along came a talking horse. Well, that's an interesting story into itself because uh, uh, I had no intention of starting my own theater company. I, I retired from teaching with the idea that I was going to pursue a professional theater career. And I did that for several years. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, Professional theater, it's a lot of networking, uh, as you might imagine. You get to know a few people through your first few jobs, and then those people know people. And so somebody will talk to them at a, at a meeting or on a phone conversation about, hey, do you know any actors that fit this particular description? And then your name gets recommended to people because you work hard and you do your job and you learn your lines and you're on time and you, you smile a lot and you're friendly. And so uh, my career had just really kind of started picking up uh, in that third year, and uh, John Ott, who owns um, uh, 
the building where Cafe Berlin is, and he owns a lot of other properties in downtown Columbia, uh, was really in the early stages of trying to develop uh, the North Village Arts District to um, secure a lot of those old dilapidated buildings and refurbish them and then move um, various types of artists into those spaces uh, to create the arts district. And uh, he had gotten a theater company started on the other side of Cafe Berlin. That building had been divided in two tiny spaces. Cafe Berlin was very tiny at that point. And um, he had gotten a theater company started, but it wasn't able to sustain itself financially and uh, didn't, uh, didn't even make it a full year. So he contacted me because he had known me from my days of running Maplewood when he sold ads for Cumulus Radio. Uh, and he said, hey, you know, I, I know you're working as, a, as an actor now, but I'm wondering if you might be interested in starting a theater company and, and taking over this space. We've got a lot of equipment that the other theater company left behind, and it's already outfitted, and all you'd need to do is basically come in and start doing shows. And it's like, well, that's really not <laughs> what my career goal is. And he kept, he kept on me, and so I finally met with him. And I was due to go to uh, Kansas City for, for uh, a job. So I just said, you know, I just don't think this is the right time. But I, I really appreciate you thinking of me. So I went on to Kansas City and I was uh, working on a show there. And uh, I just kept thinking about what a rare opportunity that is to, to take over an outfitted space and start a theater company from scratch. And of course, at that point, I had had enough experiences with theater companies to know what I really valued in really good theater companies and what things I should avoid in really bad theater companies. And so I kind of had an idea of how, if I had ever started a company, what it, I wanted it to look like, what my vision for that company would be. So toward the end of my time in Kansas City, I called him back and I, I said, you know, is that space still available and are you still looking? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I'm going to be wrapping things up here um, in Kansas City pretty soon. Would you like to meet again? And I'll take another look at the space. And uh, so when I got back, I, I talked with him again, and I was due to leave to go to Pennsylvania for work uh, in two weeks. And so I didn't have much time to make a decision. But I decided I would go ahead and bite and uh, take the challenge. And so uh, I started working on paperwork with him. And um, then I loaded up my car and I drove to Pennsylvania. And I worked there and uh, out of my hotel room, I started Talking Horse by making phone calls to prospective board members, uh, contracting with a lawyer to help me navigate uh, setting up a not-for-profit with the Secretary of State's office, finding an accountant who could help me to um, figure out how to uh, set the company up financially. And then when I got back in December, we had a board meeting. We had our first auditions in January and put a show up in February. So... <laughs> <laughs> Great crazy Ed is still doing <laughs> doing crazy things at that point, but that's how Talking Horse started. And uh, of course, we didn't last at that space very long. We just had grew it really quickly. And and John offers us a space over on St James Street where we still are. We moved over there in 2013, so uh, we were at the the original space next to Cafe Berlin for about uh, a year and a half. Yes, I I got to see shows at the St. James place. Right. And such a variety of shows that you uh, help create there. Well, you know, what's kind of fun about working in a small space is uh, re-envisioning what theater can be, because a lot of times people think of 
of theater is, uh, you know, going to a great big auditorium and you have to have a, a gigantic stage with wings and fly space to fly, you know, set pieces in and out. And um, you really don't have to do that as long as you have uh, really good stories with really strong characters in them that, that have something important to say and give the audience something to um, continue to work through and process days after they've seen a show. Uh, I, I love that kind of theater. I mean, I, I enjoy just the pure, uh, the pure entertainment theater too, but uh, I, I really like and appreciate the depth of some pieces of theater and uh, uh, the impact that they can have, social impact, uh, emotional impact on their audiences and so forth. So that's the kind of stuff that Talking Horse does a lot of. Um, we occasionally delve into just something that's uh, uh, light and airy and fluffy, but not very often. <laughs> well, that to me is how you fit into building a more humane world from the inside out is through the choices that you make in what gets performed at, uh, at a place like Talking Horse. Right. And of course, Talking Horse is, is it's, uh, it sort of filled a, a niche that was uh, not being tended to um, by the theater companies in town. And um, developing a theater that, that is very intimate like that, where the actors are so close to the, the uh, uh, audience members and um, you're, doing, you're doing scripts that are not going to be produced, you know, in mass by lots of other theater companies. So um, I, I think that uh, our audiences have come to, to uh, appreciate at Talking Horse um, the fact that what we offer is unique to the Columbia theater community. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I'm down in Jeff City, and uh, we have our scene one. Right. Our little, uh, we call it black box, uh, wherever right. we are, it's a black box theater. That reminds me kind of of, uh, not quite the same space, but uh, about the same size of audience, I think. Right. Oh. And, and, you know, Mark and Tracy Wegman have been uh, just great, uh, great supporters of Talking Horse, and we've, we've helped them out quite a bit, too. Uh, when they moved to um, their new space, uh, they needed some uh, different seating, and they needed a lot of black curtains. And we had surplus black curtains that we had not used when we moved to the new space uh, oh. that we had had at, at Talking Horse. And so we made quite a few donations or very inexpensive sales to them <laughs> so that they could, so that they could make that move uh, uh, economically and quickly uh, to their new space. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed going to some shows there with some friends and, and uh, just seeing what they do down there. Yes. I've, I've had the pleasure of, of being in the audience and being on stage both. It's, uh, it's yeah. a great venue, great venue. And again, you know, they offer something to the Jefferson city patrons that uh, nobody else does. So. It's it's good to have um, it's good to have your own little bit of business that you do that uh, doesn't do crossover with everyone else. Well, another thing they do, and I don't know if you had the opportunity of talking horse, but they have a lot of local writers that are able to perform uh, direct or even turn over the directing to somebody else of of shows. Uh, did you ever have local writers there to talk? Actually, about? we have a, a new play series that we do in November called Starting Gate. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we've done it for either five or six years at this point. And Starting Gate, uh, what we do is we um, uh, solicit writing samples from uh, local writers. At this point, it's still local. We've talked about maybe moving that to a regional or even a national 
competition eventually. But um, from those uh, submissions, and this year we, we just uh, got ours selected, but from those submissions, we choose three writers who will then write original work for the company to stage, and we give them a prompt. So this year's prompt is Blessing Curse. We do an opposite every time. Oh. And last year it was win-lose. And so uh, they are free to interpret that any, the, any way they want to, but they write two plays. One is supposed to reflect uh, one piece of the uh, dialectic, and then the other uh, play reflect, reflects the other piece. So we'll see what they come up with, Blessing and Curse, this year. Oh, oh interesting. <laughs> but those are staged in November, and we workshop them. It's a little bit of a different process also in that um, they start writing and then in July we gather together and we invite the community to come in and, and um, sit in on the readings too. And we read through their first drafts and we make suggestions to them. They can take them or leave them, uh, but we make suggestions to them on, on how to make the play more cohesive. Uh, and then um, we come back again in September and uh, we do a second reading and see what they do. And then those shows are auditioned in October and put up in November. And we do six 10-minute plays each night, you know, for the, for the entire weekend. So it's a, it's a weekend festival. It's fun. Well, and well, it encourages good writing, you know, which is uh, really important. We had uh, short attention span theater. It's yes. a fun, similar idea. And now Mark has uh, sort of evolved to the Rough Writers group and here people submit their writing and they have almost weekly meetings where they can actually present the material and, and get critique and things like that. Right. So yeah, lots of uh, interesting play that you're, that both groups are doing in that. Right. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate their, their take on things. And uh, of course, uh, rough writers, uh, Mark seems to have a little obsession with Teddy Roosevelt. So. He does. <laughs> well, theater, that's bully. That's bully. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, I don't think I was aware of you until, what, you came down to uh, Capital City Productions in what? Uh, several years back, I did a straight play with them called Becky's New Car. And that was my first opportunity to work with the company. Okay. From there, uh, Nate Sankpol had asked me to play one of the dads. And I said, well, do you guys pay or is this amateur? Because I didn't really know that much about the company at that point. And he said, uh, well, there's no, there's no pay. And I said, well, before I sign up for a musical, I just want to know if I know the musical director. So who is the musical director? And he said, well, we don't have one. <laughs> and I said, okay, so here's the deal. I will, I will be your musical director and I will play Harry if you'll pay me to be the musical director. Oh. And so that's how I, I got involved with that show last summer. And I got to tell you, that was just a blast. You know, Mamma Mia, you talk about a show that doesn't really have any social redeeming value. It's just a, <laughs> it's pure, pure fluff and entertainment. But it had been a while since I'd done a show like that. And the, the cast that he had put together was just so much fun to work with. And uh, we just, we really enjoyed each other's company. It was just kind of a pleasure to go to rehearsal every day. That was my big, my big foray into uh, musical theater with CCP. Didn't you turn Talking Horse, uh, you sort of retired from Talking Horse in a way? I did. I did. You know, uh, running a theater company uh, pretty much by yourself, uh, I've had uh, a, a part-time tech director to build sets, but um, much of the other work was just falling to me all the time. And um, 
um, getting a little long in the tooth to be doing 60 hour work weeks. Mm -hmm. And so I just decided that, you know, if I wanted to uh, make a switch and get back into uh, just being creative uh, uh, and not be running a business, uh, that I'd like to uh, turn that company over to, to some other people. Um, so, of course, it was a not-for-profit. I didn't sell it to anybody. I just simply uh, stepped down from uh, my position there. And uh, uh, two young people in their 30s, uh, have taken it over, and uh, one is serving as the executive director, and then the other one as artistic director, and uh, they're doing just a great job. Uh, of so, course, this pandemic has really kind of thrown us for a loop this year. So um, we we opened uh, our season, you know, in February like we normally do, but our April show and our July show have both had to be canceled for this season uh, just because we cannot audition, we cannot rehearse. Uh, and we cannot, in a black box theater, uh, economically spread people out. You'd have maybe five, ten patrons, you mm -hmm. know, in, in a small space. So we, re we really can't operate uh, as of yet. We're still uh, holding out hope that um, perhaps the, the uh, uh, show in September uh, will be able to run. So we'll have to see. Roshara, is she the... Right, Roshara Knight is our, is our executive director, and many people know her as a, just a, a blockbuster singer. She's a, really kind of a, a very bluesy yeah. uh, type, of, type of singer, and uh, she's also just an excellent actress. But uh, she finished her master's in um, uh, not-for-profit management, um, I think just a year ago. And uh, so she's had a lot of um, background in grant writing and, and uh, kind of uh, the, the business end of it. And then Adam Britsky is uh, our artistic director. He's been on quite a few uh, in quite a few shows for Talking Horse, as well as Maplewood Barn, uh, and uh, has a theater degree from Missouri State, and uh, worked for a short time as a professional actor before he returned to Columbia to pursue other things. So you know, he brings a for a young man brings a, a lot of good common sense and and a lot of uh, experience. We have experience the same thing you have down here in, in Jeff City with Capital City Productions. We sort of had a, a in a sense, a double whammy. Uh, we lost our space at Shikles. Uh, yes. And the building got sold to our Catholic Charities and we needed to find another place and we're only able to get into our new space just before January 1st of this year. And it was a big warehouse space on Wicker Lane. Uh, if you all in Jeff City know where IHOP is on Missouri Boulevard or Freddy's uh, Hamburgers, or it's right down Wicker Lane, runs right between the two. And so we had this uh, big warehouse that didn't have anything theater-wise in it. And so we started from scratch and uh, we couldn't, do our first show there that had to be done at a different space. And then the second show we couldn't do, we, we uh, taped it and put it out where people could view it on their TVs. And the third show is going to open tomorrow night. And what is your role again? I, I'm, I'm directing and serving as musical director for Bonnie and Clyde. Um, which we uh, were not really thinking uh, originally was going to be the, the first um, the first show in the new space. They got permission, I guess, from Jefferson City to not 
uh, pack the place with patrons, but to spread people out far enough so that uh, they, they're selling fewer tickets. But the leaders of the organization really felt like they needed to uh, get the new space established and to get back on their feet. It's going to be just a wonderful, wonderful space. But it's been, like I said, just kind of a scramble. So we started uh, rehearsals for Bonnie and Clyde way back in February uh, because it was supposed to be a show that went up in April. Mm-hmm. And then halfway through our rehearsal process, everything shut down. And so we went on hiatus for a while. And so uh, we got permission to start rehearsals again back on May 4th. But we've been rehearsing wearing face masks and being careful not to touch other people, you know, no, no embracing. That you, if you know theater people, you know how hard that is not to give people a hug when you see them. <laughs> so it's been learning a whole new list of um, socials. Uh, standards, you know, to to do these rehearsals. Uh, And of course, next week, when we go into tech week, the masks are coming off because we have to work without those. So uh, everybody is feeling okay about that. We haven't had any illnesses or anything. And people are being really careful about uh, associating broadly with lots of other people in the population, you know, to to lower our risks. We'll see. But the show is going to be fabulous. I'm just... (laughs) I'm so pleased with my cast, and uh, the music is wonderful for this show. Uh, Frank Wildhorn is a, a Broadway theater composer who, who uh, wrote this show, and uh, it's just a beautiful show. We're doing it a la Talking Horse style in a, a little bit. It's done with projections and furniture pieces and props, but no giant set pieces at all. We have several scenes set in a jail, and they just carry on portable jail cells mm-hmm. And unfold them and set and you know set up and then they do the scene and then they fold them up and they take them off. So we don't have a lot of big you know wheeling carts and things like that. And and I know uh, you know in the past with CCP shows at Schichel's uh, sometimes the the sets were you know incredibly large and rather cumbersome really to kind of shift around. So um, we're doing it in a pared down version and that was kind of my idea. If you and I I had watched uh, the original. Uh, Broadway show, a taping of that, and and uh, it's very similar to what they had done in New York. And I just thought, you know, walls really are not needed. If you have these projections to just tell people where this next location is, let them use their imaginations and let's keep the story moving. Um, let's not take four or five minutes to set up the next scene. Anyway, I'm I'm real excited about it, and and uh, the cast is great, and uh, we are we are right where we need to be at this point uh, in rehearsals that we'll be ready to, to welcome our audiences in on May 28th. Well, I'm happy to say that the uh, bathrooms are close to being completed. There's plenty of toilet space for men and women on the ground floor, since there's only ground floor. No elevators to deal with anymore. That's right. <laughs> And we're going away from the uh, plastic plates that could not be recycled because they were number six. And we're using real plates and we have our own dishwasher. Wow. Automatic dishwasher that will be cleaning and sterilizing all the uh, plates and and, uh, utensils. We still are uh, going to have the catering done by Argyle Catering. So and they, they make fabulous food. I, I ate way too much during Mamma Mia. 
too much of the same meal every night. <laughs> well, but it was so good. And you know what? By the, by the time the show closed, that spandex suit I was wearing at the end was a little tighter than it was when we started. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> great, great. Let's see what else I can think of with uh, the new space. We've got uh, the carpet is down. The, we had to completely build the stage. Uh, well, I will tell you that the stage is huge and uh, there is some wing space on both sides uh, now, but the way this has been designed is that if there's a huge projection screen in the middle and then two flanking masking screens on either side um, so that uh, entrances and exits can be made from lots of different areas on the stage area. There's also a possibility of, because they've got stairs, that lead up to the stage that you could pull some scenes right down into the audience. Now we are not doing that just because we're trying to keep some distance, you know, from our, from our audience members, but the stairs will be in the future, a great resource for our actors because they'll be able to uh, take scenes right out into the audience and make entrances and exits, you know, behind them, behind the audience area and creative use of that space is going to be limitless really. It's a huge space, and like you said, I don't know how unique that is for the stairs, but there are stairs all around the front. What do they call that when a stage projects out into the audience a bit? A thrust. thrust. Yeah. yeah. Thrust stage, and stairs completely around the, the three sides of that thrust stage. So right. Lots of, lots of interesting options in that regard. Uh, do you know anything about uh, how people would get tickets to see? Well, uh, the best way to do that is to visit their website. And uh, they've set up uh, the ticketing, I believe, so that you can actually choose your seat through the website and lock in where it is that you want to sit. It'll, they'll have, when you pull up the chart of seating, uh, they'll have uh, little X's on chairs that have already been uh, sold. And I think they've got in this first, uh, because they're spreading people out, they've got some seats that they are not selling just to, to keep the, the distance from, from uh, people. So those great big tables that seat eight, uh, unless a, a party of eight calls in and says, we are willing to all sit together, we're fine doing that, they're going to only put four people at a table. When they visit the website, which is ccpjc.org, they can get all the information they want. If they prefer to call they can just simply call the number that's there uh, on the website. 573-681-9612. So okay. one more time, 573-681-9612 is there on the front page of the website. And they would be happy, I'm sure, to talk with you and, and to help you figure out the best seating arrangement for you and your party. Right. Can you uh, tell us a little, I mean, most of us know the story of Bonnie and Clyde, but why did you pick Bonnie and Clyde? Or did it well, I, I did not pick the show, but they picked me to direct it. Oh, uh, okay. I think one of the reasons why uh, they asked me to direct it and uh, to do the musical direction is because of the fact that the Broadway show uh, really did not use great big sets. And they figured to have somebody who has the experience of working in a, a much more sparse setting uh, for staging uh, would be a good thing. So uh, I, was, I was pleased to, to be asked to do the show, and I'm, I'm tickled that uh, uh, it's going to turn out as, as good as it is. The, uh, what, was your, what was the first part of your question again? 
we know sort of the story. I, I'm I'm thinking would this show not be appropriate for the whole family? Uh, I would say that this is probably not a, a show that I would bring anybody less than 13 to. There's, there's nothing, there's no nudity, there's not a, a wealth of bad language or anything, but just the subject matter itself. There's a, there's a little bit of uh, language, but uh, for the most part, it's, it's, um, it's really kind of a profile of how these two, what their backgrounds were as, as children even, and, and how these two uh, came to meet and uh, what drove them into this crazy idea of uh, becoming glamour gangsters because that was part of it for them. It wasn't just the money, but they were really kind of seeking notoriety, seeking fame. Mm -hmm. And uh, through that story, as it plays out, you, you know how it's going to end, of course, uh, if anybody knows anything about Bonnie and Clyde. But, but at the same time, you can really see them as, as humans who deeply loved each other and, and uh, uh, just kind of went off the tracks, you know, and <laughs> weren't following necessarily what society would expect them to do. And they were really uh, hailed by uh, many people in the press as being heroes because this was right after the Depression. And people were saying, look at these folks. They've figured out a way to make this work for themselves. <laughs> and uh, they're exciting and they're, and they're good looking and they're dynamic. And they, be, they came, almost became uh, cult figures through the press. And she was, uh, she was also a writer. She, she wrote poetry. And, and so she was sending off her poems while they were on the run. She was sending off her poems and they were being published in newspapers. I didn't know that. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's just kind of this, this crazy thing of, of uh, uh, embracing two people who, who really should have been vilified by the public, and, and yet they were, they were being, uh, uh, you know, hailed as cult heroes. So, <laughs> I think that's a, a, the really interesting twist on the whole story. Somehow a church gets involved in this. I, I, I don't know from the original story. Uh, what uh, religion plays in this, but uh, I know you got a preacher and you've got uh, scenes anyway. I, I saw some of the Broadway on YouTube. Right. The, uh, the character of Blanche Barrow, who is um, Clyde's sister-in-law, uh, she's married to Clyde's brother, Buck. And uh, she is uh, kind of a God-fearing woman. And uh, she convinces Buck early on in the story to, because uh, Buck and Clyde have escaped from jail. And she convinces him to go back to jail, surrender, go back to jail, finish a sentence so he can start clean and then, you know, get, a, get himself a job. And so she's arranged for Buck to be baptized and then uh, taken directly off to jail after he's baptized. Now, the character of the preacher, and I, that is one of the most difficult roles in the whole show. The, just vocally, it's really demanding. Frank Wildhorn, the composer of this show, uh, is very good friends with a very dynamic actor-singer that's in New York. And I cannot remember this guy's name right now for the life of me. But he, I, I think he wanted to have his friend do this show. And he wrote the preacher role specifically for his friend. And we are so, so lucky because uh, a man named Kelly Tannehill, who's a, a resident of 
of Jefferson City, has not done any stage work for a while, but um, got wind of this show and came to auditions and just blew me out of the ballpark with his audition. And um, he is, in many ways, um, sort of the sanity or the glue that holds the story together. He appears at various times uh, in, the, in the story uh, and, and almost serves as a narrator uh, at times for the story. And uh, I just, I, I love the character and I love what Kelly's doing with him. So um, we're really lucky. <laughs> oh, that's exciting to hear. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be a, in a way, a new face for uh, audiences to uh, um, experience and, and appreciate. Which is you awesome. know, there are some, I think there'll, there'll be several new faces. There are several uh, CCP regulars in this show too. Alex Armstrong is playing Clyde, for example. But uh, you'll, you'll recognize uh, uh, quite a few new faces in there too. And uh, we're doing this with a relatively small cast for a musical. I think there are 23 mm -hmm. uh, in the cast. And um, uh, that was partially me also wanting to uh, give everybody multiple things to do. And so several, several of our actors are in several scenes playing different characters every time, which is always kind of fun. And Bonnie is? Bonnie is um, Taylor Beamer. She teaches, uh, I think, middle school down in Jefferson City, and then she lives in Columbia. And I think she's done a couple of supporting roles, but this is her first chance to really step up and have a major role. And uh, she is just adorable as Bonnie. I think, I think people will love her. Now, we were in uh, Cabaret together is where I met. Oh, is that right? Right. And like you said, a supporting role. And uh, so this is real exciting for uh, me to see her as a lead in, in uh, such a dynamic show. Uh, let, me, let me tell you a little story about auditions. I was originally looking at her for Blanche. And we had callbacks, and I asked her to come. And then uh, the, the gal who's playing Blanche, uh, uh, Deb Tregaz, and she's done several things with CCP. So, so anyway, I had them, I had them read, but I had uh, uh, Deborah just read the, the Bonnie part for me so that I could hear Taylor read Blanche again. <clears throat> and when they finished, I don't know what struck me, but all of a sudden I said, just switch parts and let me hear you read the other way. And everything clicked. <laughs> And I thought, oh my God, why, why was I not seeing Taylor as Bonnie, as a possibility for Bonnie before? And uh, of course, uh, Deborah was just uh, terrific as Blanche. So uh, I, Deborah was one of those actresses. I, I read her probably for five or six different parts and I could have cast her in any of them. She is a very flexible actress, uh, just you know, has the ability to sort of morph from one character to the next quickly. Um, but uh, those two work really well together, and the scenes that they have together are, are pretty, pretty magical. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that little story about the audition. That, uh, that, you know, those are fun to know, those little tidbits of the behind the scenes. Well, there is no, there is no uh, magical formula, you know, for casting a show. It's all gut instinct. And so uh, when, I, when I switched those roles and had them read that way, I just was like, that's what I'm looking for. Good thing. Good thing I listened to my inner voice and switched them on the rolls there. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. So uh, let's uh, tell the audience uh, listening today, the show starts tomorrow, Thursday. Uh, that will be Thursday, May the May the 28th. 28th. And we'll, we're running Thursday, Friday, Saturday for two weeks. 
So we'll run the, the 28th through the 30th, and then again, June 4th through the 6th. And the Saturday shows, there are two. There's a matinee on Saturday plus an evening show. Mm -hmm. And so if uh, the patrons don't like to drive at night, mm -hmm. or if they're just saying, well, I've never been to Wicker before, it'd be nice if I could go in the daytime and find it easily. Yeah. Uh, it's right off of Missouri Boulevard, but uh, if you know where the Verizon building is, that's my landmark as I'm driving down Missouri Boulevard oh, <laughs> to find okay. Wicker. I just look for the Verizon store on the same side of the street. But uh, I would encourage folks to, uh, to check it out as a matinee, just so they can kind of see the surroundings and, and uh, find their way easily to the building for the first time. Right. And it's the same uh, uh, food. Uh, Argyle's is the same venue, menu, everything uh, on right. the matinee as well. As it is. Each of the three evenings. So. It is. Yeah. Very good. Very good. And... Uh, that was ccpjc.org. Right. I wanted to check it out. And uh, it's a lot of letters, isn't it? And no, no, no vowels at all, <laughs> <laughs> except for the O. Ccpjc.org. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, that's good. Where repetition is always good. I know how to tag. <laughs> well, I I can imagine Ed that. Uh, since this particular project is, we might say, already in the bag, right? you have something else cooking. Well, it's kind of interesting because I am looking to move from Columbia. Uh, oh. And so what's, what's looming for me later in the summer, I'm hoping, is that somebody buys my house. Oh. Uh, I'm, I'm going to move uh, over to Atchison, Kansas, of all places. And... Uh, use that as sort of a, a hub for myself and I'm going to try to uh, get back more into doing a little bit of traveling with with acting and uh, I'm just ready for a new place to be I've been in one place for 40 years and uh, uh, so I'm, I'm ready and looking for uh, some new adventures that it's uh, Atchison is fairly close to Kansas City and I'll be able to uh, uh, check out some of the professional theater there and uh, also to uh, uh, get to the airport, it's only 30 minutes. And so if I start doing any, uh, you know, regional theater around the country, I can uh, easily get in and out. So that's my plan for right now. So I was supposed to actually be in Spain right now. Uh, <laughs> I had a, I had a trip to Spain planned for right after I finished Bonnie and Clyde. And so, <laughs> so sometimes things don't work out the way they're supposed to, do they? So we'll see. We'll see. Come by my house. <laughs> You mean come B U Y your house? <laughs> yeah. Oh my. Well, hopefully your dog won't run away again before. Well, you know he's an internet celebrity at this point. He's done it twice. Yeah. And uh, the the whole world looks for him, and then he's discovered four or five days later. He's at daycare right now, so I'm getting ready to go and pick him up in a few minutes. But he he he's a very social animal. But he he sometimes gets these. Uh, little thoughts in his head that he needs to have an adventure and and uh he'll take off on us so we we have to keep an extra close eye on him <laughs> you know one thing i i didn't uh mention to the folks or have you mentioned but i think uh, just before this zoom call you were taping a, a church service right i'm 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 the director of music at Calvary Episcopal Church, and of course we had to suspend all of our services just like all other churches did uh, 
And um, it's been kind of a, an interesting adventure. I didn't even know, well, I was also teaching at Stevens. Uh, so we finished our semester. Uh, I was uh, doing their concert choir for them. So we had to finish the semester on Zoom. I had never even heard of Zoom uh, until the beginning of March. And um, <laughs> now I live on Zoom, <laughs> it seems like. But we did our church service on Zoom. We've been doing those since um, right before Palm Sunday, I guess. And uh, all, the way, all the way through uh, the Easter season. And uh, uh, at, th at this point, I don't think we're, we're going to be resuming live services uh, uh, in May either. We're probably going to wait until, until early June. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. I, I also want to take this public moment to thank you for referring um, me to Courtney Krause, who was directing Scrooge over at Stevens College. Yeah, you're doing a Christmas Carol, and and Courtney is Rob Krause's son. Right. And Rob was the founder of CCP. So what goes around comes around. But uh, they had asked me to play um, the ghost of of Scrooge's partner, um, Marley, and uh, I was not available because I was tied up with uh, with something else. And so uh, I said, "Well, you ought to call Dick Dalton." <laughs> You need somebody who really looks old. Call Dick. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I'm glad that all worked out. It. It. Uh, I was. I was directing a show for Talking Horse at that time, and I just. Uh, I couldn't uh, split my split my time up like that. So sure. I was glad you were able to do it. Well, it was my pleasure, and and uh, I do appreciate it muchly. Uh, as I appreciate you being on the show today. This is. It was great. I really enjoyed visiting with you. And we uh, look forward to Bonnie and Clyde. The musical down at CCP, Capital City Productions in Jefferson City, uh, tomorrow through uh, Saturday and the following weekend. So yes, uh, and just a quick a quick shout out from myself. My closing day, June sixth, at uh, Bonnie and Clyde is also my sixty fifth birthday. Oh. So um, I'm I'm ready for Medicare and for a slower uh, pace of life. <laughs> Well, we will welcome you to the fold. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Once again, Ed Hansen, thank you. And uh, listeners, remember, uh, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care and talk to you soon.